You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. What's up, revolutionaries? Thanks for tuning in to the Real Vision Daily Briefing. For more content like this, head over to realvision.com and get unfiltered access to the very best, brightest, and biggest names in finance. Mike Green, I'm here in Marin County. Excited to reach out to my friend, Louis Gav. Louis, you are up in British Columbia, I presume? I am. I'm on Vancouver Island. Great to see you, Mike. It's been too long. You are sitting at the, the, the vanguard of winter. And as you and I have been discussing for years and years and years, the, the biggest story that has been out there from our perspective, outside of obviously my views on passive, is the dynamic of China and what's going on in China. And in the last two years, really, you know, in the last year and a half, to be more accurate, it has become painfully clear to everybody that China plays an outsized role in the world, right? That it, that it is, alongside the United States, one of two countries that kind of, quote unquote, matter. Absolutely. You and I have had this discussion for for what feels like it's actually more than a decade now. I was first yeah. exposed to your work with the Brave New World when I was still at Royce. Um, you've done a phenomenal job of introducing Western investors to China. If I were to very quickly ask you to kind of sum up what the Western perspective has been on China basically since 2000, how, how would you describe it? And where do you think that's, that, that has clearly been wrong and, and where is it going today? Um, well, first of all, again, thanks a bunch for having me. I'm, I'm always, I, I always enjoy our catch up and I'm going to try not to talk too much because I always learn more by listening to you than by talking. Now, on the question of China, I think the, you know, the, the real accelerator in the China story was, of course, its entry into the WTO, which was almost 20 years ago. Uh, and at the time, I think most people missed it or missed the importance of it because it was shortly after 9-11. Um, and so, you know, we were obviously all focused on the war on terror and, and all the things unfolding there uh, to basically take a step back and think, hold on, you know, we're adding eight, nine hundred million workers uh, into the global system here. What impact is this is this going to have? And it turns out, of course, that, that the impact was was massive. You know, in the following 20 years, the, the accumulated trade surpluses of, uh, of China vis-a-vis the U.S. was more than four trillion dollars. Um, and, you know, you've seen a growth in China uh, over these past 20 years that you, you've never seen before in, in, in any economy of any decent size. Um, so it's uh, it, it has been, you know, living in China. I, I recently moved to, to British Columbia, but I was living in Hong Kong and we have an office in Beijing. You know, it's been sort of having front row seats into the most important economic transformation. Having said that, you know, I think if you look at it from the Western world's point of view, the idea of bringing China into the WTO embedded in that idea was the notion that as we integrate economically with China, China will become more like us. And us, I mean the Western world, they'll become more democratic, you know, uh, Chinese people will have more civil rights and all these things. Um, and, you know, there, there was some uh, historical precedence for this. You know, there, you had South Korea that did you know, being integrated into the global economy and then became more became a full-fledged democracy, actually. South Korea is a full-fledged democracy in Taiwan. So, you know, I think that the hopeful view 20 years ago was this is going to follow the sort of same path. 
Um, as you integrate economically uh, and as China grows rich, uh, it'll become a democracy because I think inherently in this sort of end of history view of, uh, of, of the world, um, you couldn't be rich without being a democracy. The, the sort of the two sort of went hand in hand in, in this Western vision. Uh, and 20 years later, uh, obviously we're not there. And I think, you know, for the first 10 years, perhaps, basically until Xi Jinping's arrival, you could say, all right, well, China's moving in the right direction and, you know, things are going uh, in the right direction. First 10 years, perhaps, basically until Xi Jinping's arrival, you could say, all right, well, China's moving in the right direction and, you know, things are going uh, in the right direction. Um, but the past 10 years have been a, a brutal shift in a different direction. And the different direction, I think, one of the impetus for the different direction was the rise of big tech. Um, you know, simply put, when you look at the Chinese Politburo, it's entirely made up of engineers who are fundamentally control freaks. And when big tech emerged, and more importantly, the era of big data, all of a sudden, there was the feeling that, oh, hold on, like we can get all this stuff to control our population, uh, to know in real time what's happening, to, uh, you know, press on this button and that happens. Why would we not do that? You know, why, why would we give that up? Um, and here, the question of why wouldn't you give, why wouldn't, why wouldn't you do that, I think comes down to very different concepts of, of society. Our, our Western world our, 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 was built on the premise of um, individual rights. Uh, you know, ABS corpus and, uh, and the U.S. Declaration of Independence. Uh, you know, the U.S. Declaration of Independence starts off with uh, really the, the rights of the individual. Um, and, and frankly, the whole of Christianity is, is really about the rights of the individual. As, as John Paul II used to say, God only counts to one. You know, we're, we're all unique in the eyes of, of God, etc. Um, the, you know, the society in out east is, is very different. It's not so much about the rights of the individual, but about the importance of the group, the importance of the community. Um, and I'm not putting a value judgment on it, by the way. It's, it's, it just is. That, that's what it is. You see this very clearly in art. You know, when you look at traditional Chinese art, you see these big landscapes and people are the size of ants. Um, well, in the 19th century in Europe, you know, they, even when you're like portraying big ideas, like let's say the French Revolution, you have, you know, Marianne like jumping the barricades with a breast uh, uh, hanging out and a little kid, like you, you, you see the people. Um, and so uh, you see this different concept of the importance of the individual within society, even within art is the, the point I'm trying to make. Um, and so in a world in which all of a sudden the Chinese government was given a bunch of tools to promote the public good, even at, if it's at the expense of the individuals, they grabbed it with both hands, and here we are. So I, I think that's actually a really powerful articulation. My experience with China, by the way, um, in terms of many of the conclusions that I drew, were directly from that. My experience uh, following the pandemic in 2009, I took my family on, an, not pandemic, I'm sorry, the global financial crisis in 2009. <laughs> I took my family on an extended tour of China precisely because I wanted to understand what the recovery in China looked like, what was ultimately going on. And the exposure to this dynamic of individual versus society, um, not even the family unit per se, right? Not family versus individual, but society versus individual was so tangible to me. In particular, it was brought forward um, in an experience uh, touring uh, Xi'an and the Terracotta Warriors, right? Where 
when you when you realize that the reason that that was created was to preserve the unification of the Chinese Empire under its first you know unifying warlord, and that the conclusion to that story was within 24 hours of his death, the society had fractured, his children had been killed, like it was a complete epic <laughs> failure, right? Um, but that that was actually a, a, a huge component of it, that, that idea of the preservation of the society at the expense of the individual and the failure of that, to, to me, was a really eye-opening experience. Now, when we think about what this means going forward, right, there's, there's two ways to look at this. And I've adopted the approach that says what we see in China looks incredibly organized and incredibly powerful because it is the will of a single individual embodied at a national level, right? That creates efficiency in the public sphere. If you wanna get a bridge done, you don't need to worry about the double-spotted mallard and its mate, you know. Instead, yep. you're focused on, is Xi Jinping going to be pleased with me, right? Yep. And explain it to the boss as you destroy the environment, right? That feels very efficient, but it also is very fragile because it exposes you to quick actions that reflect the will of an individual that could very well be wrong. How would you respond to that? What's your what's your reaction function there? You know, I first moved to China in the early 90s, and I've been told since then that, you know, the, the Chinese regime was one crisis away from collapse. Um, and that the Chinese Communist Party, um, yeah, that basically it's it's reign could could crumble at any at any time. And you know, since then there have been a lot of crises. You you had the Asian crisis, you got the tech bust, you got the mortgage crisis. Um, China's had a bunch of boom and bust in its own equity markets and real estate markets, and of course you've had uh, now the COVID crisis. Um, and the reality is that the Chinese regime has been very resilient. Um, and in fact, I would say that, you know, from the Chinese point of view, um, I think if you go back to the late 90s, early 2000s, there was this view that uh, the guys at the Fed, the guys at the U.S. Treasury, they were the smartest guys in the room, right? It was the, you know, the, that Time magazine cover, the Committee to Save the World, et cetera. They bought that hook, line, and sinker. I mean, they, they really bought into it. These guys, you know, they, they know what they're doing. The guys who work at the IMF, smartest guys in the room. Um, and that whole worldview of sort of the, what was called the Washington Consensus, it, it crumbled in 2008, right? Uh, when all of a sudden, you know, the U.S. banking system implodes and all of a sudden it, it appears to everyone that the emperor is naked. That, you know, far from being the smartest guys in the room, these guys couldn't even regulate their own domestic banking system uh, and couldn't even prevent like widespread, widespread banking failures. Um, and this view that all of a sudden, hold on, the U.S. are not the smartest guys in the room. Um, and it's it's been amplified, frankly, by the COVID crisis. Um, you know, from a Chinese point of view, and I'm not saying this is right, but from a Chinese point of view, they've handled COVID well. You know, they locked down Wuhan early. They prevented the spread. There was no surge in deaths, et cetera. And most of the Western world failed. Um, and this is the message. And I, I, I'm not saying I agree. Don't, yep. don't no, get no, me wrong. I, but this, this is a judgment-free zone. Feel, feel free to say anything that <laughs> you is, want. We'll, this, we'll, we'll this make is, sure that's clear. This is the view, and this is very much the propaganda that, that gets passed on. It's in essence, you're lucky to live here because if you lived in the U.S. you know, or in Europe, you've got hospitals overrun, et cetera. And, and the, the governments there failed in their basic uh, – their basic function of, you know, basic care to, to their populations. Um, and 
Uh, and again, I think most people buy that. Most people in China uh, buy that. I, you know, if today there was an election, I'm pretty sure Xi Jinping would win with two thirds, just like Putin does in Russia. Now, of course, you could say it wouldn't be a real election because you control the media, blah, 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 of course. But, you know, the, the propaganda is, is such that it, it's so strong that, no, I think the, the regime is very resilient. I'd, I'd add one more thing. Um, uh, two reasons why I think the regime is, is going to be resilient. Um, the first reason is the demographics. China is aging fast. And, um, you know, it's it, throwing stones at the police is a young man's game. Um, you know, 50-year-olds have to pay the mortgage. Uh, they, they don't have time for revolution. Um, and so as your society ages, your odds, you know, it's, you know, you see revolutions in countries where more than half of the population is under 25, typically, not, not the other way around. So, that, so the demographics don't argue for, for big regime change. Um, finally, the other reason is, you know, on that front, I guess I'm a bit of a Marxist, but the, if you look through history, most revolutions occur because of inflation. Uh, it's basically when you can't feed your family because the price of bread is going through the roof, that, that you get angry uh, and that you take to the street. And today, um, China is the only regime in the world that's inflation hawkish. They're really the only central banks maintaining positive real rates, and they're actively, you know, combating inflation. You know, building big stockpiles of food, being built stockpiles of energy. When the prices go up, they release those to, to cushion it, etc. And you know, what 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 I find interesting is for the past twenty years or thirty years, I've been told how, you know, there was going to be, you know, regime change in China and it's big, like lack of resiliency on the political front. Meanwhile, you know, for the past year, all the riots have been in France and in the U.S. You know, uh, it, it riots in Seattle, riots in Portland, riots in Washington, D.C., uh, you know, riots all over Paris. Um, so I think if you look for, you know, people who don't feel represented by their political elites, um, I think you can look in Europe where there's a huge disconnect between the fact that all decisions are being taken at an unelected European commission. Um, or frankly, you could look in the U.S. where the polarization of society is such that, you know, when the other party wins, half of the population thinks they cheated. When Trump won, everybody thought, oh, you know, uh, Russia toyed with the, uh, the voting machines, blah, blah, blah. And when Biden wins, um, you go through, you know, half of the population saying that the votes were tampered with. Um, so it's, I'm not, I'm not worried about the resiliency of the Chinese political system. I'm worried about a lot of things in China, but not that one. So I mean, what you're describing ultimately is kind of the J curve, right? I mean, North Korea is a very stable regime as long as, um, uh, you know, the leadership remains in place, right? Um, if it changes for any reason, right? You know, and it, it's, it is stable, but fragile at the same time, right? A small change in the events of um, effectively any one person can have a significant impact in the overall society. Absolutely, but the comparison, the comparison, sorry to interrupt you, but the compare North Korea, you know, it's, it's, it's a very brutal dictatorship where you can't leave if you want to, where you're, lock, you're locked in, et cetera. Um, so similar you know, just, to Australia, you're saying? Exactly, similar yeah. to Australia and New Zealand, you can't come in, you can't come out. Um, you know, China, today, you, it's very hard to come in and out of China as well, of course, um, but, you know, while, you know, North Korea is a loathed regime, but a, a regime that lives by terror, I don't think the Chinese regime lives by terror. There's, there's massive buy-in from the population for, for what's unfolding in China. 
But in, in part, for many of the reasons that you highlight, right? I mean, we have facilitated this effectively. We've broadcast Voice of America straight from Ferguson, Missouri, or from uh, Portland, or from Minneapolis. And the Voice of America programming is no longer America the beautiful and the land of the free, but instead we are self-flagellating on the public yeah. stage, right? No, no, if, you, if you're... You know, if you listen to the BBC, if you listen to Voice of America, and if you're Chinese, you think, oh, this place is racist, it's uh, sexist, uh, it's uh, homophobe, it's this, it's that. So, oh, I don't want to be a part of this. Yeah, for sure. And I think that's actually, to me, that feels like one of the bigger messages, right? Because I, I put out a tweet on Australia and was immediately inundated by people from Australia telling me what a terrible take it was, right? That, you know, Australia was not, you know, impinged on its freedom and comparing it to the United States and saying, you know, uh, which would you rather be? Would you rather be the United States or would you rather be Australia? And my reaction to that is, well, right now, neither, right? I mean, that, uh, you oh, know, I'd be the U.S. every day and twice on Sunday. Yeah, well, that, that's just because you have a bigger army if you do so. But um, but the critical point that I would make is, is that nobody is presenting themselves well on the global stage. You can point to Sweden, you can point to any of them, right? And everybody is open for criticism in one form or another. And the perception that we have in the United States, we've basically defaulted just to the, yeah, well, they're lying, right, as it relates to China. You know, mm -hmm. increasingly the population in the United States treats information coming out of China as if there is no validity to any of it, right? The economic yeah. surprise indices are, are deteriorating. Oh, that's that's valid. But if the GDP comes through as something or the inflation numbers come through in a somewhat reasonable fashion, well, that can't possibly be true, right? They're yeah. lying. Yeah. Um, and, and I tend to fall into that camp. I think there's an incredible <laughs> amount of lying coming out of basically all countries today, right? So we see this with the suspension of GDP now in the United States recognizing that it's inaccurate, that it's not giving us good signals, but that is immediately interpreted by myself included as well, isn't that convenient, right? Um, yeah. We don't want to talk about it. For the end and of so actually, the end, no, no longer publishing M3? Yeah, exactly. We stopped publishing M3, we'll eventually stop publishing M2, M2. and it's yeah. all under the, the framework of, it doesn't really matter. And, and I do think that that's actually kind of an important point that you're raising because it brings up a, a, an, an observation that you have made in other broadcasts that I want to fully flesh out a little bit more, which is the concern, the, the, the hope that everyone had was that China was going to become more like us. And it appears, and this is something that I had warned about in terms of my interaction with U.S. government officials, et cetera, it appears that the direction is we are becoming more like them. Oh, no doubt about it. Uh, I mean, that's that's exactly like that was already happening before COVID, and COVID's been a massive accelerant. I mean, I'm not that old that you know. I I remember when China put Wuhan on lockdown. You had editorials and papers saying, you know, what a terrible abuse of civil rights, and never could you see something like that in a Western country. And within three weeks, we were doing it. Right. Um, look at, you know, China in 2008, to the crisis, their response was to tell every bank, every guy that walks in through the door and asks for a loan, you give it to them, and we'll underwrite it. That was the response in 2008. What did we do in 2020? In the US and France, the government said, every guy that walks in through the door, you want who wants a loan, you give it to them. Um, and uh, you know, and and you do so at a zero percent interest rate or at a one percent interest rate. Um, you know, you tell the landlords you can't charge rent anymore. 
It's like, well, hold on. That's how I make my, my living. It's like, well, tough, tough for you. I mean, you look at it, you know, I live, I moved to Canada for a number of reasons, but you know, in the past year, you've had two Catholic priests arrested for saying mass in Canada. Now, I never thought if I had known that before moving here, I wouldn't have moved here. I'll, I'll tell you straight up. Uh, I never thought that would that would be possible. Uh, and that's before you go into the fact that Australia, as you point out, is you know it, it's gone beyond China and it's now North Korea, as you as you highlighted. Um, now, you know, how did we get here? Well, again, it goes back to this constant societal back and forth between individual rights and the good of the community. Um, now, I think what happens in China is decisions get taken. You know, in North Korea, there's nothing that's good for the good of the community. It's just for the good of Kim Jong-un. But in China, you know, a lot of the policies are actually taken for the good of the community because they realize that that's how they build their, um, uh, their buy-in from the population. So decisions get taken supposedly for the good of the community, and some of them are. Um, and I think Western policymakers look at those and say, oh, I'd like me some of that power. I'd like me some of that. Um, and, uh, and invariably, six months, 12 months, 18 months later, whatever happened in China, our policymakers uh, start to implement on us. Um, and again, for the good of the community, you know, the road to hell is paved with good intentions. Um, and it's for the good of the community. But make no mistake, the good of the community comes at the expense of individual rights. Let me ask you this. I'll make like a Jesuit and answer your question with another question. What has occurred in the past three years? What decision, what political event has occurred where the rights of the individuals trumped the good of the community? I can point to you 50 decisions where individual rights were crushed for the good of the community. Um, I struggle to find a reverse example where the, the rights of the individuals were, you know, promoted, even if it came at the expense of, of community. And you see this in, and it's corroding every one of our institutions. Look at how, for example, uh, the ACLU is hardly what is a shell of what it used to be. You know, the ACLU used to defend not the rights of Nazis. It was started by Jewish lawyers. They used to defend the rights of Nazis to march through Jewish neighborhoods. I mean, you know, they were hardcore in their belief that freedom of speech is the most important thing out there. Uh, who defends freedom of speech today? You know, what victory for freedom of speech have we seen in the past three, four years? It's like, you know, progressively... You know, we're moving to societies where what matters is the good of the community and against the rights of the individual. And if that means that we need to monitor speech, then we need to monitor speech. If that means that we need to impose lockdowns, then we'll impose lockdowns. If that means that we need to uh, impose vaccine passports, then we'll impose vaccine passports and so on and so forth, all for the good of the community. Yeah, it's uh, this has been a very distressing period for myself and for many others as we have watched exactly what you're describing. You brought up an interesting one when you when you when you highlighted the dynamic of the the um, Catholic priests in Canada, and I, I actually want to explore this idea just a little bit because the Catholic Church and most churches are the traditional institutions that in many ways yeah. have actually provided people that sense of community, et cetera, right? But they're also the counterpower to political powers. Historically, religious institutions, their role is when political powers infringe too much on individual liberties, and they say no. Like, you know, this is Thomas Beckett, this is Thomas Cromwell, this is 
um, you, this is John Paul, John Paul II with uh, the Soviet Union. Um, you know, historically, you know, the Catholic Church is all of its sins, but it's one big redeeming quality is it was the counterpower to the kings, you know, and that's why it survived. That was its, that's what that's what its role, and it's failing its role today. Uh, the Pope is failing its role. The Pope, by accepting to close down the churches, um, the Pope has failed, I think. And you should have said, you know what? Put my priests in jail. Let's put let's put 100,000 Catholic priests in jail and we'll go to the Supreme Courts and we'll have the Supreme Courts decide what kind of societies they want. Um, but he failed. You're a podcast listener and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with lips and ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. There's so many links that are coming together here, right? Because part of part of what you highlight when you identify that dynamic, right? That priest, the martyr in the classic sense of the phrase, right? standing up against the power, the powerful and willing to offer their lives. Among other things, this was some of the dynamic of celibacy and everything else, right? You become incredibly vulnerable when you move to protect your family. You brought up the idea of inflation beforehand, where it really becomes untenable in a society is where you can no longer take care of your family, right? As a, as a father or a mother, if you sense the desperation or the inability to change the outcome so that your children are safe, right, then you're going to react. Um, but until you get to that point, it's always more dangerous, right? Don't stand up, don't say anything. You're gonna put the kids at risk. Your kids will get in trouble. We've seen this absolutely in Western society where parents have been paralyzed trying to figure out what the heck they're gonna do with their children, how they're gonna maintain their households, how they're gonna maintain their incomes in the environment of the pandemic. In my opinion, this has been one of the primary vectors that has been missing has been the leadership of the church, the, the elites, the institutions that historically would have set, stood up and said, no, we stand for the rights of the individual. We understand that there are risks associated with it. There are absolutely risks associated with allowing Nazis to march on the streets. But we think there's a much greater risk associated with the loss of the individual rights that have to extend to all of us if we're going to protect them. Right? I couldn't agree more. Yeah. And that's so, how we're becoming more Chinese. I see it exactly the same way. My assertion is that this is nothing unusual that actually you know when we talk about it's never different this time that's a complete intellectual cop-out there are periods in history where it is incredibly different right and i would highlight that the western development was largely um uh in sync with a dramatic expansion in the quantity of land that was available right so the discovery of the Americas, the ability of the populations in Western societies to be able to give the middle finger to their leadership and their elites and pick up and travel to America instantaneously, raising the probability that they would be able to own their home outright, that they would be able to carve out intellectual or, or religious freedom, right? And be able to live their lives in a way that represented their individual choices far more so than the choices of the elites, the state, etc. That that's gone. Absolutely. No, this is this is a big challenge today. It's a massive challenge. It's if you don't want to deal with all this these COVID rules, these COVID lockdowns, these uh, restrictions on your freedom of speech, etc. Where'd you move to? 
It's where, where'd you go? Yeah. Um, I guess, you know, we moved to Sweden. Yeah, it's br br brutal winter and, and has a mixed record of dealing with significant immigration. So yeah, yeah. it's um... no, no, it's it's very hard. It's very hard. No, the you're absolutely right. I think to highlight that, you know, the you know, we've all seen the curves, the curves and like growth of global population, growth of global GDP, growth of global production of everything. It does correspond to the ability to say, you know what, I don't like the policies here to basically shop for the best policymaking. But in a world in which all the policymaking is increasingly different. I mean, honestly, what's the difference today in terms of policy between living in France and the US? I mean, you know, you have broadly the same tax rates. You probably have a, you, you have a better, more expensive healthcare system, much more expensive healthcare system in the US than you do in France. You know, better army, but yeah, like fundamentally, what's the main difference? Well, in a weird way, I feel very much like the United States is almost watching a version, you know, of Animal Farm, right? Where it's, you know, hey, it's so much better here on the Animal Farm since we yeah. threw off the yoke. Um, you know, uh, damn it, we have our we have, we have our own health care, right? We pay for our own health care and get to, to drive that. Well, OK. Um, and, um, you know, we save our own money in our 401ks to pay for our retirement. Nobody puts it aside for Okay, um, you know, like, <laughs> we pay for our own education. That is, we pay for our own education because the public sector education is is generally not satisfactory. Like, it, it, it is remarkable the um, you know, and, and and those who watch me regularly know that I am among the staunchest defenders of the United States. Right, you and I have sparred on this for for as I said over a decade now. Right. But it is remarkable how captured we seem of the image of America, almost embodied to steal from from the latest elections in the make America great again, what it, what America stood for. And yet the behaviors that we're engaged in are, in my view, the very tail end, like almost smoking the cigar butt of the Reagan revolution. Right. This idea that smaller government, that you know, government is incompetent, that it can't do anything. And then simultaneously. Man, we really got to watch out from those for those Chinese, right? Um, you know, you can't reconcile those two views, and I, I genuinely believe that the that the geographic dynamics, the loss of that ability to pick up and leave and physically relocate yourself so that the emperor is far away, um, plays a primary role. I mean, there is nowhere left to go. It prevents the competition between governments. Yeah, you know when when. When the yokels like you and I had a choice to get out of Dodge, it forced the governments to to compete to some extent. Yeah. They they couldn't, you know, if if they wanted to keep at least some of the yokels around to do some of the work, um, they they you know they they had to they couldn't crush you too bad. But now they crush us with taxes, they crush us with regulations, and they you know they they crush our, our freedom of speech. And here we are, and with nowhere else to go. So if we change our path um, of the discussion, I'm not sure there's anything we can do on the direction that we're going as a society, certainly not in the context of this conversation. What are the implications from your perspective of this idea that what has historically been viewed as the strength of China, this centralized control, this focus on community, is the direction that we're going in the West? Can, do, can we aspire to 
building bridges and not worrying about the double-breasted spotted mallard? Or, you know, can we, are, are we trapped in a different way? Well, so first of all, I think that part of that is part of that view that, that I see more and more and that has me really both upset and alarmed. Uh, yep. This view that, you know, what we need is for the U.S. to have a big industrial policy. Then we can, you know, then then everything will be great. So for Europe to have an industrial policy, then everything will be great. Well, it's like, well, hold on. Like, have you guys never picked up a history book? You know, we, everybody, France had massive industrial policy in the 1970s. Where did that lead France or Japan in the 80s and 90s? And, and where did that go? You know, if, if governments were efficient allocators of capital, I, th I think we would know it by now. Um, and, you know, frankly, the entire experience of the U.S. in the past 20 years is a negation of this. Like, you know, the U.S. has done very well in the, the past 20 years. And it's the U.S. has boomed thanks to two factors. Uh, one of them was the tech, uh, the, the tech boom, uh, you know, which you know wasn't really. You could say, well, part of it was funded by, you know, the internet was a military creation, etc. So yeah, sure, there's some government involvement, but you know, by and large, you know, there was no government involvement in the creation of Google. There was no government involvement in the creation of Amazon. There was no government involvement in the creation of Apple, and so on and so forth. Um, and then the other big success in the U.S. was the shale oil boom, uh, which is, of course, now coming to an end. But, you know, there again, you know, minimal government involvement. If anything, the Obama administration tried to put the brakes on it rather than let it flourish. Um, you know, the, you didn't need to, to tell the Texas wildcatters, here's a bunch of government handouts for you to go drill a hole. Uh, they were, they were, he was very happy to go drill a hole by himself. So, you know, this notion that you need uh, a sort of industrial policy to to grow is in my mind completely misplaced and it's misplaced because it also misjudges where america is today uh you know china and the us they, they don't play in the same courtyard they, they don't even you know it's they don't even play the same sport china's still playing catch up um and you know it is catching up don't get me wrong but the reality is you know when you do need to build interstate highways like Eisenhower did in the 50s, uh, when you do need to build bridges, et cetera. Then yes, government, that's what governments are good at. But you know, does the US need a new interstate highway system? Sure, you could throw more money at fixing the existing one, but it doesn't really need a new interstate highway system. Let's not kid ourselves. You know, China's growth was 20 years ago, there was zero miles of motorway, and now 95% of Chinese people live within an hour's, an hour's drive of a motorway. Uh, it need, that needed to happen, and, and it's happened. And yes, that, that does happen through central planning. But again, you know, a, a lot of that, uh, you know, that happened. That was what drove the U.S. growth in the 50s, the 60s and 70s. And that's what drove Chinese growth in the past 10, 10 or 20 years. Um, the other big misconception is where Chinese growth comes from. You know, most people, you know, tend to think that Chinese growth comes from central planning, from the government, like being very smart and doing all these smart things. And, you know, part of it comes from the infrastructure spending, no doubt, and that's government led. Um, to a large extent. But a lot of the growth in China came from deregulation. You know, Deng Xiaoping came in and said, look, I'm going to deregulate labor and see what happens. Uh, and lo and behold, everybody put their factories in China. Uh, and that was a huge wave of growth. Then um, Zhu Rongji came in and said, you know what, I'm going to deregulate real estate. Uh, and that was the next wave of growth and you know, massive growth. And then uh, Hu Jintao came in and said, I'm going to deregulate, or more like Wen Jibao, actually, but I'm going to deregulate the commodity sector. And so that was another big boom market, another big wave. 
And having deregulated labor, having deregulated land, having deregulated materials, you come to the final frontier, which is capital. Um, and now they're in the phase where do we, de do we deregulate capital or not? And that's the phase they're struggling with a little bit because, um, you know, giving up control of the purse strings, it's, it's a hell of a jump. It's a hell of a gambit because at the end of the day, if you control the purse strings, you still control uh, you still control everything. It's you know all those Jefferson quotes, and you know he he who controls uh, the, the central right. bank power to tax, the power to destroy, etc. Yeah. yeah, it's so it's so, um, that's where they are. Yeah. So do you think they're, they're going to make it past deregulation? Do you think they're going to make it past that point? Do you think that they will liberalize capital allocation? I was more confident of it. I was more confident of it six, seven years ago. Um, the reality is, Xi Jinping and everything he's done has shown that he is a control freak. Uh, and that he, he does want to control everything. And I think one of the big challenges today is they're looking at the Western world, which is actively destroying their, the, you know, the U.S., Europe. They're all trying to destroy their currencies. You know, they're all imposing. So I think the view is, well, look, we can probably, we can probably transform the renminbi into a trade and reserve currency without giving as much control as we thought we needed to five, six years ago, partly because the U.S. and Europe are so busy self-sabotaging um, that, you know, de facto will be, will be the winner. And then secondly, there's the new development, of course, that you and I have discussed before, which is, you know, the, the possibility of the digital currency, uh, which, you know, they're going to be launching uh, around the time of the Beijing Olympics, um, and which, you know, if it is a success, gives them everything they want. They internationalize the currency while keeping maximum control because in real time you can see where the money is how it's flowing where it's going um and so you know this all of a sudden this new possibility that you didn't have five six years ago because nobody was thinking okay you could have a digital renminbi five years ago uh, this possibility that hold on in real time like, remember these guys are engineers in real time we can see where all the money's going um through our supercomputers and know oh we need to do a little bit of this and a little bit more of that and you know this sort of myth of the great machine that you can just dial the knobs here and there it's very tempting very very tempting so i i, I unfortunately tend to share your view that that is the direction that they're going in we certainly saw that beginning in 2013 and you you know you highlighted the emergence of xi jinping it's worth transporting many viewers back to that point because unfortunately, you know, the mists of time tends to obscure stuff that even just happened eight years ago, right? Um, when Xi emerged, he was actually a compromise candidate. He was, you know, uh, splitting two camps and one of the only princelings effectively that was available that was not allied strongly with either side. I think both viewed him as a solution where, um, okay, he's fine, he's not my mortal enemy, he's, you know, relatively nondescript. And I would suggest that Joe people Biden. have... Been, what's up? <laughs> he's Joe Biden. Biden. <laughs> well said, right? Um, but, he, you know, he is... Um, he has surprised his opponents with his brutality and yes. his uh, interest in consolidating control. Yeah. Uh, would, does that feel fair to you? Absolutely. And, okay. uh, and you know, he cleaned house... Uh, you know, usually the way things work in China is that usually you have the most power uh, towards the end of your reign. So, you know, it's, it's the opposite of the political cycle that you typically have in the U.S. You know, in the U.S., you know, Joe Biden gets elected and for his first year or two, he has the most power because he has a lot of jobs to distribute. Right. 
So everybody jumps up and up and down and say, I want to be ambassador to the UK and I want to be head of the, you know, the SEC and I want to be, you know, head of the FDA or whatever else. So as you distribute the jobs, you know, you can say jump and people say how high, right? Now, usually what happens in China is that um, this, you come in and you're, you know, you're the compromise candidate, whether you're Hu Jintao or you're, you're Xi Jinping, you come in, you're the compromise candidate and you basically spend the first five years getting rid of the guys you don't like in a nonviolent way and putting in the guys you do like so that in your second five years, you have the ability to implement the policies that, that you perhaps want. And Xi Jinping broke that mold. Uh, he came in and partly because, uh, you know, the corruption in the wake, if you go, you know, 2008, the crisis happens and the Chinese government decides we're going to throw everything we have at this. Then um, they absolutely pour money. So they, they're basically tr trying to funnel money through a pipe that this big. Um, and unsurprisingly, a lot of it falls by the wayside and, and falls in the wrong pockets. Um, and before you know it, you've got, you know, the mayor's son wrapping Ferraris around trees and, um, and the party starts to lose a lot of credibility. So he can come in on the back of this and say, look, corruption's gone way out of control. And this was, and, and launch a massive anti-corruption drive and clean house. Now you could say, well, they're all corrupt. And I would say, yeah, sure. But you know, the, the, when you want to do your anti-corruption drive, you can pick and choose who, which corruption you're going to go after. Uh, and so he cleans house and it's wildly popular with the population. And it's very popular with the large, big parts of the party. Um, as it would be in the United States today, right? I mean, that dynamic of a witch hunt or purge, the blaming and identification of the guilty parties, the salacious tales around how much gold they have in their house or how many wives they have or how many concubines or, you know, what they've stolen from the party. These are all designed to, you know, um, rev up the religious fervor uh, no in a population. No doubt. And it's done and it's done very well. So. He cleans house and he ends up very powerful very early on and consolidates his power. And now he's here for good um, and, and not going anywhere. And so no. as a result, you've sort of transformed the Chinese Communist Party, which, you know, following Mao, the Chinese Communist Party said, we, we can't have one man rule again. Like, you know, this Mao thing was a bloody disaster. Um, you know, 80 million deaths. Uh, it was like, you know, Deng Xiaoping's own son was thrown out the window. Uh, you know, they, every party member had horror stories that have happened to them. So they, they all felt very, you know, Xi Jinping himself, you know, he was for two years in the countryside digging the dirt, digging the dirt with his nails uh, during the Cultural Revolution. So they all go through and say, okay, we can't have that again. So we need to basically put in some, some kinds of checks and balances. And the check and balance they come up with is rule by committee. Um, and so we're going to rule by committee and decision, important decisions will be taken by committee. And th that's now being swept aside and we're back to one man rule. So when we think about the, the laments on the other side, right? And so I'm definitely in the camp that says that China is much weaker than um, is popularly perceived. I think it lacks many of the geographic advantages that set the United States apart. I think it lacks um, uh, the attractive demographics from a growth perspective, right? It, it effectively is frozen in time and its population has largely voted with their ovaries 
that you know they are better off if they choose not to have multiple children, despite the fact that we've eased the standards of one-child policy, et cetera, right, at least nominally. It's just too expensive to have children in China in the same way it's too expensive to have children in Western society. Um, broadly speaking, as a, as a population, everyone has chosen to favor aging over uh, you know, rejuvenation or youth, right? So we'll uh, encourage spending to keep people in their homes, which in many situations is targeted, obviously, at the older populations. Um, we will, at the same time, choose to keep children out of school, you know, all in the name of protecting them from a virus that appears to have no, you know, tangible effect on their population whatsoever, right? Um, there is very little willingness to sacrifice on a societal basis for children, I would argue, in either population. Um, in part, children don't vote, right? And parents are, uh, as we discussed earlier, too stressed to figure out how to exploit the advantages that they might have if they were to bind together. Uh, but when we think about what this means going forward, right? Hasn't Xi ultimately, yes, he himself is more stable. But are the information systems under that type of authoritarian system, are they capable of elevating facts until it becomes um, way too big of a deal, right? I mean, COVID would be a great example, right? Do we have full transparency? Do we understand what's really going on? The system basically becomes, hey, hopefully I don't have to reveal that this is going wrong, right? There's no reward, the shoot the messenger dynamic in an emperor system is quite robust. Um, you mean like the CIA telling Biden uh, the Afghan regime lasts another 90 days? Yeah. When well, it was, when it was as I said, we hours. are becoming more like, right? <laughs> it's, uh, I'm, I'm not in any way, shape or form trying to point to the United States as, as it's all good, right? No, no, no. Um, but is that ultimately, does that create you know, the loss of, because what I would describe, the way I would describe China, you nailed it. China had high potential energy, it had a population of 1.4 billion that were in abject poverty, that had the capacity to become educated, that had the capacity to raise their living standards, that had the capacity to provide the goods and services to the rest of the world that had been shut off for them because they were shut out of the global system. Ascension into the WTO basically took that 1.4 billion people and provided the means by which you could radically raise their, their productivity in a one-off shot that would take an extended period of time to play out. China is still, as Peter Thiel uh, and others have observed, China is still poor on the individual basis, right? But now the society itself is rich and powerful and the spoils of sitting at the top of that are extraordinarily high. Do you still have the same incentive to raise the standard of living for the population? Or does it slowly descend back down the J-curve towards the stability of a North Korea? Oh, I, I think the stability of a North Korea is, is, is pretty far off. No, I, I, the North Korea... Um, towards, not, not, not to, but towards is yeah. the direction I'm... Um, let me take a step back and say, look, yep. you, you, know, you probably know the Steve Martin quote uh, that... Uh, bef before you criticize someone, you, you got to walk a mile in their shoes. Like this, yeah. when you criticize them, you're a mile away and you have their shoes. Uh, <laughs> and um, so let, let us put ourselves in C's shoes for a minute. All right. Let, yeah. let's, let's try to just do that uh, to try to understand where he's coming from uh, and therefore what the likely policy choices are, are going to be. Um, 
I think if you're she, the the most brutal of wake up call, the, the traumatic event of the past three four years, was the takedown of Huawei. You know, here yeah. you have yeah. your the company you're the most proud of. It's you know a global tech leader. It's we're gaining market share everywhere. It basically shows to China and to the world that we can compete. You know, we China can compete with the best. Um, it was, you know, it was the sign of China's arrival. It was the sponsor to the world, to the soccer world cup. You know, you had the Huawei signs all around the pitch, etc. It was, this was it. This was China's arrival moment. And in the space of six months, the U S crushed it like, like an inconvenient bug. Um, and it crushed it by highlighting a weakness that I think the Chinese government hadn't even zoned in on, which was China's dependency on semiconductors. Um, I think China was very aware of its other two weaknesses. The other two weaknesses being its need to import energy through the sea that is controlled by the U.S. and its um, a dependency on the U.S. dollar to fund its trade, to fund, etc. And so while everything she was doing was trying to, you know, basically moderate the dependency on the dollar and moderate the dependency on uh, sea imported oil. Um, they got hit in the back of the head with, with the semiconductor thing. So now, what does that leave Xi? He has three weaknesses. Semiconductors. He's throwing money at it. He's throwing people at it. You know, they're basically recruiting engineer, engineers in Taiwan and Korea for five times the price that they're being paid there. You know, if you're a STEM PhD, you make more today in China than you do in Europe. Um, so they're absolutely throwing money at, at this problem. Um, and they're basically roping in the, the tech sector. I think, you know, when I look at, when I look at the crackdown on the tech sector, um, for me, it's a lot, basically these big companies being told you have to do national service. Um, what's, what happened was three years ago, Alibaba, Tencent were basically told by the Chinese government, look, it's all nice and well to produce video games and to figure out how to put, you know, ads and cat videos. Um, but uh, that was then. Now the U.S. is coming after us. It's now a national emergency and we need all hands on deck and we need the smartest guys in your room to figure out how to build semiconductors. So give us the smartest guys in your room. In essence, that's what the Chinese government told these guys. And Alibaba Tencent said, yeah, 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 sure, we'll get back to you. Um, cause we like putting, you know, cat, cat videos on the internet cause that's how we make money. Um, and you know, in that regards, I think that the recent beheading of the education stocks was the old saying, uh, kill a chicken to scare the monkeys. Um, the education stocks made the perfect scapegoat. These were guys who, uh, a number one, um, don't, uh, borrow money from anybody. Number two, are not part of an ecosystem. You know, it's not like you crush this and then all these other companies go bust. Um, and so now, you know, Alibaba, Tencent, et cetera, are all going to toe the line. Um, the parallel would be, you know, in the U.S., when Roosevelt launched the Manhattan Project, if you were a top scientist in uh, Princeton or you were, you know, a smart guy working on Madison Avenue and Roosevelt called you up and said, oh, by the way, forget what you're doing. You're moving to New Mexico and you're going to work on the Manhattan Project. Uh, you wouldn't have said, ah, you know, I got, I'm busy that week. Uh, I got this other thing to do because the U.S. was at war and it was your duty as an American to do what you could. Um, well, you know, this is how I think Xi Jinping now looks at the world. 
the U.S. has gone after them. Um, and so now you got to think in terms of national interest. So you got to build your semiconductor industry. That's also behind, when you look at energy, that's what drives the push behind alternative energy. It's like we have to wean ourselves of oil because oil at the end of the day is controlled by the U.S. Uh, whether we like it or not, they control Saudi Arabia. The U.S. produces all the shale. Um, the, you know, most of the marginal oil production in the world is in Venezuela and Brazil and Colombia. All this is controlled by the U.S. Um, sure, we can do deals with Russia and with Kazakhstan, but that's not going to be enough. So we've got to move to electric cars. We have to move. Um, and it's very nice that the U.S. just left us all the lithium in Afghanistan. That will help. Thank you very much. And incidentally, uh, I think if you're Xi Jinping, you're probably thinking, that you're probably very confused about the U.S. leaving Afghanistan because, you know, here was the the one military base that the U.S. had on China's border. It yep. was background. That that was yep. it. Um, and to maintain it, the U.S. needed to keep 2,500 guys there, and they've just given it up. Now, if the U.S. is confused, if China's confused, think about Taiwan, Japan, or South Korea. Yep. They keep being told, hey, you guys need to, you know, come with us and fight China, and then the U.S. abandons its one military base on China's border. Uh, if you're Taiwan, you're probably thinking, okay, hmm, uh, how, how really, how serious are you about your confrontation with China? You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L-I-B-S-Y-N-Ads.com. So that's a great transition point because, I, you know, you and I have also talked about this for an extended period of time. And, and um, has your view on Taiwan or the likelihood of annexation of Taiwan, and I use annexation as distinct from invasion, right, because it can happen in multiple forms, but do you think that the game is over for Taiwan? Uh. I think they have to sell themselves at a good price. Yeah. Um, the now it's hard because there's only one buyer. Uh, but look, the reality is um, China's throwing so much money at Taiwan today. China's not going to invade Taiwan. So let's put that out of the way. China's not going to invade Taiwan because it would destroy everything Xi Jinping's been trying to build for the past ten years. Uh, you know, one of his big pride pride is this 15-nation trade block that was signed last uh, last December at a time when everybody was looking at the U.S. election. China signs a trade deal with Japan, with South Korea, with Australia, with New Zealand. You know, core U.S. allies. Uh, you know, join China's free trade zone. It's it's a huge coup for Xi Jinping. Of course, if tomorrow China invades Taiwan. That's over. That's dead. Japan cuts its trade with China. South Korea cuts its trade with China. And China isn't economically strong enough to, to withstand that. Um, so the invasion of Taiwan, I think, is frankly, uh, you know, scary stories that the U.S. military industrial complex likes to, to, to bring out so that they can justify buying another, uh, another um, aircraft carrier or spend more money in nuclear bombs that will never be needed. Um, what is instead happening today is that China is going to Taiwan and saying, oh, oh you're an engineer at TSMC. Uh, how would you like five times your salary to come uh, to the mainland? And a lot, of, a lot of people are doing that, partly because you, we have to, to realize that uh, you know, the cultural difference 
between moving from Taiwan to say Shanghai, uh, from Taipei to Shanghai, etc. It's not, you know, it's the same language. Uh, it's the same food. Uh, it's a short flight back and forth. It's, it's almost as easy. It's probably as easy as moving from Canada to the US. You know, it's like the cultural difference isn't going to like throw you massively off, off balance. That was certainly true for Hong Kong, right? But has Hong Kong already played, has that hand already been played? Is it impossible to say we will have, you know, um, uh, one country, two systems in the context of, of Hong Kong? So there's two different things. You know, why, why would China want Hong Kong? Because Hong Kong is a financial center, right? So, you know, again, going back to these three key weaknesses, you see Jinping, you think the U.S. is coming after me. I got a weakness in semiconductors, a weakness in energy, and a weakness in capital markets, for the lack of a better word, my dependency on the dollar. The weakness in capital markets I'm going to address by taking over Hong Kong. And so he has. You know, a year after Huawei starts, boom, China takes over Hong Kong. Um, because in essence, China realizes my access to capital, I can't be dependent on U.S. capital markets anymore. It's just not going to happen. So the takeover of Hong Kong at this point, is it, it's a fair complete. You know, that's, that's done. Then there's semiconductors. So semiconductors are produced in Taiwan. So you can say, all right, fine, I go invade Taiwan. But of course, if you invade Taiwan, the fabs will be destroyed and all your best engineers will be on planes to either the US or, or Japan. And that's if the military operation is successful. If it's unsuccessful, you know, you, you probably have terrible consequences in China, et cetera. It's like the Argentines taking over the Falklands, uh, probably regime change and all these things. So Xi Jinping's never gonna take that gamble. Um, so you're left with, uh, okay, we need to build the semiconductors. Simplest way to do it, cheapest way to do it is to buy these guys. Yeah, to, you know, how much you pay? You're, you're a TSMC engineer, you paid $150,000 a year. How would you like $400,000 a year? Boom, done. And do that over and over and over again. And again, today, you know, from basically getting paid peanuts five years ago, STEM PhDs in China are now paid more than PhDs in Europe. Yeah, it's a... Um, and catching up faster than the U.S. Yeah, no, it's it's an interesting question, although it also flips it on its head, right? Because if you think about that dynamic, one of the one of the ways that I would would interpret that is that it is evidence of scarcity, right? So oh, can you sure. can you ultimately turn around and reverse that dynamic, or do you now find yourself at almost a competitive cost disadvantage? I mean, my interpretation of what's happening in TSMC is to put on, you know, my uh, uh, medieval Europe um, mode and say, you know, if you are the royalty of a um, smaller principality and you're faced with a loss of your principality because of the encroachment of a much more powerful, larger neighbor, right? What is the very first thing that you do? Well, you get the firstborn child and you get the crown jewels out of the country and into a safe zone, right? Um, TSMC, I would argue, is doing the same thing, right? They are putting their crown jewels into Arizona um, and trying to, to establish effectively the funding source if you wanted to have a um, government in exile. Yeah, I, I, I would do the same, of course. Yeah. Um, but will they keep their engineers? You know, a company like TSMC is, is really, yes, the fabs cost a bomb, absolutely. Uh, but to your point, the challenge for China was creating an ecosystem. Uh, today, they are at a massive cost disadvantage because, and 
China and Korea and Japan, Korea, Japan, and, and Taiwan are at advantages because they've been doing this for 40 years. Um, you don't build yourself a semiconductor ecosystem from scratch, right? Uh, in the way that China is now attempting to do uh, without putting a ton of money in this. And, you know, China, Japan did put a ton of money in this. You know, I, I'm not saying I want to rush and invest in Chinese semiconductors, not at all. Um, I'm just thinking more in terms of, you know, for them, it's not about having the most profitable companies. It's just a geopolitical necessity to, to, to have this. And I like your, I, I hadn't thought of it this way, but I like your medieval uh, European analogy. Perhaps the analogy is, you know, when, when Francois Premier, Francois I of, of France went down to Italy and saw all the artists and, you know, met Leonardo da Vinci and sort of, you know, he went down there for war um, and met all these artists and then he brought them back to France. He's like, oh, yeah. this is pretty good what you guys are doing. And that brought the Renaissance into France. And from then on, the basically Europe's uh, cultural center shifted from northern Italy to France, where it stayed for about 200 years and for 300 years, for the next two, 300 years. If you were an artist, if you were Picasso, you moved to Paris. Um, if you were George Orwell, you moved to Paris. Um, if, you know, if like if you're an intellectual and it's lasted two, 300 years, but that's where you went. Um, and that really started with Francois Premier bringing all the Italians Basically saying, hey, you know, come to me to to my uh, to my country, and I'll write you big checks. Um, and that's where all the artists went. And it, Italian art after that sort of plateaued and went down, and French art took off. Um, so maybe that's the analogy yeah. but for for technology. Yeah, I, I I don't know the answer. I do get the sense very much that Taiwan is at the encouragement of the United States, effectively shipping the crown jewels for safekeeping. It's going to be harder, I think, for China to capture it than um, uh, might appear. But that's, it's, I'm far from certain on this, right? I mean, this is, this is one of the things I think is so hard about where we are right now is, is that it is very stochastic in its outcomes. Um, I'm in the process of pulling together some materials for a related project. And the decisions that we make today, while they each individually won't um, decide the outcome, are cumulatively going to decide the outcomes, right? The game feels like the United States is to lose in my mind, but we're certainly doing our best to do so. Um, and that's, you know, I find that very frustrating and I'm not sure that there's great answers out there yet, right? Because- Like the, 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 US, the US was always dealt pocket aces, right? Yep. I mean, the US with its natural resources, the fact that it can't be invaded, uh, yeah, the list goes on. Uh, you know, hardworking population, blah, 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 blah. The list goes on. It, it's always had pocket aces. Uh, the, one, the one challenge the U.S. has, of course, is that everybody knows it's got pocket aces. Um, and so, if, you know, if everybody knows around the poker table knows what you have, it's, it is hard to surprise anybody. Um, and, you know, one of my, my core beliefs is that while undeniably the U.S. has pocket aces, U.S. investors, by default, seem to assume that China has a two and a five, um, and uh, and I'm not sure that's that's right. I, I don't think China has a two and a five. Uh, they, I'm not uh, sure that they have. I'm not sure that they have a two and five. Certainly on the global scale, I'd I'd, I'd certainly put a jack in there somewhere, right? <laughs> but um, maybe even a pair I mean, of jacks. 
Yeah, I'm not sure I would go there, but there might be a same suit somewhere in there, right? Um, but it, it is, it, I think it's going to be really interesting because I do agree with you. I, I actually think the irony, though, and this comes back to the United States and the dynamic of us becoming more like China, I find one of the most concerning things in the United States is this concept of make America great again, right? This idea that, well, we clearly are failing, right? That, that, that you know, the issue is somehow that we no longer have the pocket aces um, and that, you know, China's hand is, is dealt better or that other players' hands are dealt better. Unfortunately, that's the sort of behavior like, it, you know, it's entirely possible. Imagine you're a poker player and you folded under your pocket aces, right? You don't realize you have that second ace there, right? And so... Mm -hmm your play becomes erratic. Your play doesn't make sense to anyone else. I, that's what it feels like in the United States right now. It feels like we are frantically trying to figure out what we do next. So what are the steps? What would you, you, you mentioned at the start of this, you have been on the reflationary kick. I have been on the, that cycle was ending. I'm personally very concerned at this stage that we are approaching an inflection point in the opposite direction. You have highlighted in some of your writings that China has begun to stimulate again, yep. that that is beginning to move. Just emphasize very quickly why that's important in the reflation trades for you. Well, look, if, if we start with the premise that there's three major economic zones, right? You've got the US, you got Europe, and you got China, you know, by and large. Europe, you know, both inflation and growth are not surprising on the upside. Um, and Fiscal policy is going to start really kicking in into the coming year in Europe uh, because, you know, Europe is always a day late and a euro short. So, you know, they started doing, talking about doing fiscal stimulus at the beginning of COVID, and now the money is going to finally start coming in. Um, so Europe is accelerating. Um, the U.S. is doing fiscal stimulus uh, and monetary policy stimulus like you've never seen before. So, you know, that to me is a done deal now, unless you think that, you know, we're about to have a fiscal tightening or, or monetary policy tightening, which I don't believe we will see. Um, then, you know, I'll change my mind if and when you, you see that in the U.S., but for now, it's not happening. And then you have China. And China has, in essence, been going through three simultaneous tightenings. Um, the first was monetary policy tightening. The second was regulatory tightening, what we were discussing earlier with the internet, yep. uh, et cetera. And the third was continuing on the zero COVID policies, um, which at this stage, uh, in my mind, is like societal suicide. Um, yep. It's, uh, you know, I think more and more countries are doing what Denmark and Norway just announced, which is, all right, we just have to learn to, to live with this. Uh, and just and just get on with it. Um, and it's all the more societal suicide since we now know that vaccines are not the silver bullet. Uh, we see it with Israel, we see it with Iceland, like everybody gets vaccinated and then you still end up with the same number of cases um, and you still end up with deaths. So it's like, okay, so either we got to go full zero COVID and turn into North Korea or Australia, um, or we basically learn to live with it. And this is, so now bringing it back to China, China's been slowing hard. China's been, because of these three simultaneous tightenings, the economy has, has you know, been hurting. Real estate has been struggling. Uh, you know, yields on non-investment grade bonds have gone through the roof. The spread with the U.S. non-investment grade has never been this high, et cetera, et cetera. As a result, monetary policy is now being eased. So that's the first step. The Second step, I think the, the regulatory attack on all the, the internet things, it's pretty much done because they've, they've basically achieved at this point what they wanted to achieve, um, which is these guys are towing the line. 
and they're being they're basically doing what they're to, they're, they're told. Um, so you know that that's that's been done, and that brings you to the third big uncertainty, which is all right the zero COVID policies in China. If and when the zero COVID policies in China disappear, um, then uh, then China booms. You've got all this pent up demand. You've got uh, you know, pent up capital spending that needs to happen, et cetera. So then where will the slowdown in the world re really come from? That's, that's why I'm on the reflationary kick. Now, if you're an optimist, you think, well, they're going to get rid of zero COVID policies pretty soon because it makes no sense. And, you know, the Chinese government isn't really one to keep making mistakes. Like when things start hurting, they, they adjust and they adjust, you know, decently pretty quickly. Um, if you're negative, uh, and I think that's actually perhaps the more likely scenario, is they wait till after the Beijing Olympics to, to ease, to, to basically get rid of the COVID restrictions. And they wait till after the Beijing Olympics for, I think, a, a couple of reasons. First, you know, they don't want a pandemic just before their Olympic, right? It, it'd be a bad look uh, to have like hospitals overflowing, et cetera, just before everybody comes in. That'd be a bad look. Number two, the last thing they want is a bunch of foreigners with free Hong Kong t-shirts or free Xinjiang t-shirts uh, showing up on Chinese TV. Um, and so, you know, in that respect, I think they probably looked at the Japanese Olympics and thought, ooh, you know, Olympics without, uh, without anyone there. Yeah, we'll have some of that. Um, yep. thank you. Thank you very much. That sounds great. Um, and so, uh, you know, there's a good chance that basically you, you kick, you stay into the zero COVID until the winter. And then unless there's been a surge in the winter, you turn around and you say, okay, we've beaten this thing. Um, you stop the testing. Uh, you say, oh, these people are dying. No, that's not COVID. That's like pneumonia. That's something else um, altogether. And you, you, you declare victory and move on. Um, and so I think that's that's the, probably the path of least resistance. For me, the only question is whether it happens before or after the Olympics, the Winter Olympics. I'm sympathetic to you. I, 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 I'm very, very sympathetic to it. I mean, I, I have highlighted the degree to which Chinese economic data is underperforming expectations. The regulatory crackdown, is, as we've discussed, has certainly exacerbated sentiment. And I think if you had told people three months ago or four months ago that crude oil would be weak for an extended period of time in the middle of you know the reopening driving season or that airfares would begin to retreat again, et cetera, I think people would have been very surprised by that. What I think is going to be interesting is what it means when China reopens. I continue to be haunted by a tweet that was put out by somebody, I think it was back in May, which is, what if China never reopens? Right. And I think that's that's the thing that worries me most. Well, then that's very inflationary. Yeah. Why is that? Why do you say that? Well, because, look, the for me, when you look at the wave of deflation of the past 20 years, you can look at it, oh, it's all technology driven, et cetera. Uh, or it's all China driven. Now, you know, to a hammer, everything looks like a nail. To a guy who spent most of his time looking at China, the big deflationary force for the world, going back to the book I wrote about that you mentioned at the beginning, Our Brave That World, was, was China. It was China unleashing 800 million workers onto the global workforce. China telling the world, look, here's first world infrastructure, third world prices. Um, you know, the prices at Walmart would not be what they were if it wasn't for China. Let's, let's, not, let's not beat around the bush. Um, and the fact that we have, are seeing inflation everywhere uh, is a reflection of, you know, the fact that Chinese ports have shut down, that you can't get enough ships, that there's massive supply chain disruptions, et cetera. Because 
we've become so dependent on China for so, you know so many little things in our supply chains, and so you know if we're going to have to readjust without China, it's going to take massive capital spending. It's going to take time. It's going to take a workforce that we no longer have. Let's not kid ourselves that in the Western world we have industrial workers. We don't. Uh, and industrial workers, you know, you, you train them over like one generation trains the next one, and so on. Um, and and we've lost a lot of that. Let's you know they still have some in Japan and some in Korea, but it's um, so you know if China never reopens, um, you know where we live in a far far more far more inflationary world. I'd like to add one point on this: is that you know one of the reasons I am an inflationista is. You know, U.S. inflation is at five percent now. European inflation is at three percent uh, on official numbers. Um, if you look at historically, every time U.S. inflation has been above three and a half percent, you needed a big deflationary hit for it to come back down. Like you know, otherwise it starts feeding on itself. Mm -hmm. um, and you know, in 1990, 1991, you had the explosion of the Soviet Union and the explosion of Japan. 97, you had the Asian crisis. 2000, you had the tech bust. 2008, you had the mortgage crisis. Uh, 2012, you had the European crisis. Uh, and, you know, euro collapsed, yen collapsed, US dollar went through the roof. Today, you know, we're at 5%. We need a big deflationary hit to come from somewhere if inflation is going to go back down to one and a half to make sense of today's bond yields. You need a huge deflationary hit to come in from somewhere. There's only two places that are big enough to provide the deflationary hit. Uh, assuming the U.S. banking system isn't about to implode, um, it can only come from China or Europe. That's it, really. You know, like if Brazil goes bust, it's not going to have that big enough impact. Mm -hmm. um, it can only be China or Europe. Now, both of them are possibilities. They are. You know, Chinese high yield debt right now is 14%. So basically, the, the high yield market in China is telling you there's going to be big bankruptcies or it's a, like the buying opportunity of a lifetime. And so, it's mm -hmm. like, so we're reaching that binary stage in China. Um, you know, Europe could blow up. I actually think the French presidential election could be a catalyst. Europe isn't going to blow up because of the markets. It's going to blow up for political reasons. It's going to be yeah. voters saying enough of this bullshit. Uh, this European Commission doesn't represent this and we're out. And I think the real risk, that's not going to happen at the German election, but it could happen at the French election. Uh, which is in April. So, and, and just to, to that to that point, very quickly. I mean, Europe remains one of the few places in the world where there still is an exit voice, right? I can leave France. I can move to another country within Europe. I can leave Europe. I can move to the United States. It remains relatively frictionless if people really decide that they want to do that, right? It's it's reduced, but it is it still sits at the center of that dynamic. So, I, I actually think that's a very important point. It, it is, but it, it could also be a voice where people say, you know what, I don't want to leave yep. France because I love France. So I don't want France to change. But I, I don't want all the decisions on budget, on monetary policy, yeah. on immigration policy, on everything to be made in Brussels. Um, yeah. And the reason it could really happen this April is with this Afghan disaster, we're going to get another wave of a million and a half refugees in Europe very soon. Yes. Um, yeah. And that's going to go down like a lead balloon uh, at the time of uh, at the time of the April votes. It, it'll probably be too early for the, uh, the the German election is in a couple of weeks. So that immigration wave isn't going to have that big an impact, but it'll have an impact by the French one. Um, so, no. So there are some risks out there, but failing a big deflationary hit. Why should we expect inflation to roll over? 
So, so the argument that I would make, and I'm almost on the other side, which is, is that those 900 million people entering the labor force had a deflationary effect on many of the things that we now take for granted as part of our, our staple purchasing power, right? Headphones and baseball caps and all yeah. sorts of fun stuff. For most of the lower end stuff, we've already started to move away from China, right? So, mm -hmm. you know, Vietnam and Bangladesh have oh, yeah, replaced absolutely. it. Oh, that, that's already all there. Absolutely. Right. So when we when we think about the role of China, I think it is very much tied into the electronics sphere. And there the labor content is relatively low, right? So the infrastructure, I agree with you that there'll be huge production disruption. But the other side of that is, of course, that production disruption then means that effectively you've you've entered into a supply restriction, which tends to be short, very sharp in its response function but is different than the sort of structural demand influence that comes from the expansion of the global labor force by 900 million people, right? I mean, China had an unquestioned, we talk about the post 2000 period, had an unquestionably inflationary impact on the components that would have made up a purchasing basket 100 years ago, right? Copper prices and oil prices and, and aluminum prices, et cetera, all exploded. I think one of the things that I object most to in the reflationary camp is I actually agree with you. I think the technology sector is the one that is most at risk on the supply side. I, I struggle to see a world in which there's rapidly decelerating population growth and a likely deceleration of the pace of um, inclusion by many of the lower income portions of the globe. I struggle to see how that is commodity inflationary. Right. I, I, I'm, I'm less convinced of that. But well, I think this actually creates a really good point for us maybe to, to pause and, and revisit it again, as we always do in six months and say good. that sounds like a little bit of a bet between the two of us. I tend to fall into the camp that says it's on the tech side that we need to be very cautious and the commodities I'm, I'm less concerned about. Um, and, and it sounds like you're more on the general reflationary camp. I'm, I'm very much on the reflationary camp. Like I think. Uh, my starting point is the U.S. dollar uh, is is going to be a structurally weak currency uh, for many reasons. But you know, one reason, of course, is U.S. fiscal policy, the U.S. monetary yeah. policy. But perhaps the most important reason is that the U.S., however you care to look at it in cultural terms and geostrategic terms, um, the U.S. can't give up its global leadership fast enough. Um, it is shedding these clothes like a cheap suit. Like, it's like, I, I don't want this on me. Um, and, you know, this was so visible in Afghanistan, right? And, um, but it's, it's been a trend that's been, that's, that's been ongoing. Um, the Americans themselves don't believe in American exceptionalism anymore. Um, now, the U.S. is a country that, you know, is uh, obviously the world's reserve currency, and where historically a roughly a third to 45% of the government bonds were bought by foreigners. And it's not just the government bonds, it's also the equities, uh, it's also the US real estate. You know, if you're a rich Brazilian, you own real estate in Florida. Uh, if you're a rich Russian, you might own an apartment in New York, et cetera. There's always this, this capital flowing into the US. And the reason it does is out of this belief of American exceptionalism. Um, and if even the Americans don't believe in that anymore, um, how can they convince foreigners of it? And so um, you know, I think that the next 10 years, we'll see a lot of foreigners um, forget, not stop bringing money to the U.S. I think a lot of them will actually be shedding U.S. assets. 
It's going to be, I think that's going to be interesting. I, I, I continually come back to the pocket aces that you referred to, right? They're still there. Uh, I think the fact that the U.S. doesn't believe in it, to me, suggests that that actually is likely to, like, once the U.S. rediscovers that second ace, um, the behaviors could very well change. And I, I would just point out that where the U.S. has tried to share that role, shed that role before, where it's retreated from the world, tended to precede periods of extraordinary credit contraction and U.S. dollar strength to the extent that, for example, in the early 1930s, we required a 60% devaluation of the U.S. dollar because the dollar had become so strong that nobody could afford to repay their debts. It's going to be interesting. I don't know. Uh, yes no. You saw the, the opposite in the 70s, right? In the 70s, the U.S. retreated, shut down, shut down Saigon, left, left Vietnam. Uh, retreat told told the Europeans the USR is our currency and your problem, um, and the yen went from three hundred to one hundred, and the the Deutschmark doubled, uh, and the Swiss franc doubled. Um, and but those are largely stories of the nineteen eighties, not the nineteen seventies. The nineteen seventies is, well, is, is a unique story. It basically starts in the mid seventies, uh, and the big USR weakness is really nineteen seventy three to nineteen eighty one. Because after that, the USR, the USR rebounds because everybody believes that the USR can only go one way, can only go down. So everybody borrows too many dollars, uh, especially in emerging markets. And emerging markets go bust and everybody's got to make that up. Um, that, that's actually exactly my point. I, I think I agree with you that we are currently in a belief system that is a structural weakness of the U.S. dollar. I'm, I continue to be suspicious that that is going to reverse. I don't think we've seen the big borrowing. I think like if you look at the period 2005 to really 2011, everybody believed the USR can only go down. And there was massive borrowing around the world in US dollars, massive borrowing. Uh, and then there was a squeeze as, you know, 2008 went bust. And then as basically the US shell boom became apparent for all to see, everybody thought, okay, shit, the US trade balance is gonna basically go back into positive. US is gonna have this massive productivity gains thanks to energy. Um, I need to cover my US dollar shorts and US dollar and had a big bull market, um, which, you know, for me was, you know, very much driven by the fact that the U.S. went from producing 5 million barrels per day to 12 million barrels per day. You know, at the end of the day, most economic activity is nothing but energy transformed. If the U.S. moves from, you know, being the world's largest energy importer to the world to an energy exporter, then all of a sudden, uh, you know, that's going to be massively a boon for growth and a boon for the currency. But that's now behind us. There's no new shell boom ahead of us. Uh, for the next couple of years, the U.S. moves from 12 million barrels per day down to 10 or 9. Um, so, you know, where's the where's the, the, the big the next big productivity boom going to come from? Um, and you can say, well, it's going to be Microsoft, it's going to be Apple, but let's not kid ourselves that these companies are the same that they used to be. You know, 10 years ago, 15 years ago, Microsoft was growing by cutting prices. Uh, now they're growing; they increase their prices by 20 percent. Uh, and yep. their sales go up by 15. I mean, that's what's happening yep. right now in Microsoft. They increase prices 20% and sales are up 15. I'm like, yeah, oh, that doesn't sound that great. Yep. Um, how long can you keep doing that for? So the whole like, oh, US tech is so special. Well, not really. What they are is they've reached a mature market, which they can squeeze and get more out of it. But the more they try to squeeze, the less they get. Yeah, no, you, you, you and I share that view. I mean, we didn't have a chance to talk about the, the market structure stuff that obviously, you know, plays a role in the way I interpret it. I, 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 would 100% agree with you that the perception of U.S. strength tied to the technology sector 
is largely a function of how the market treats it. And as you know, I'm, I'm not particularly of the view that there's a lot of information content when Vanguard and BlackRock dominate the flows, the flow structure. So, so let me ask you this. What, what do you think happens? And here I'm very curious. What do you think happens to the dollar if for whatever reason, you know, this tech thing starts to crack? So I think that's part of the challenge. So if, I, if I'm going to push back in the United States, we just passed the all time peak in terms of college employment. Effectively, that means that retirement dollars are flowing into 401k plans, they're flowing into passive investment vehicles, et cetera. Um, I think that there are some structural dynamics that can play tied to RMDs in the second half of this year, the second last quarter of this year, as those are reintroduced. I think that could be a bit of a wake up call. But broadly speaking, I, I, I actually don't think that um, financial markets are likely to meaningfully recouple with those underlying fundamentals for an extended period of time. There's just too, too much pressure in the opposite direction. Um, and unfortunately for China, China is increasingly running into the buzzsaw of the United States, beginning to treat capital markets as a weapon and disinvest from, from China. That I would argue is an important um, consideration. Yep. We're gonna have to wrap it up, but as, as always, <laughs> this was, um, you and I could talk for hours and hours and hours, and unfortunately nobody else wants to listen to it for that long. <laughs> but um, this was absolutely fantastic. I'd like to continue our pattern of getting together every six to 12 months and, and speaking on the public on this. We've got some pretty clear ones in front of us in terms of, in particular, the dynamics of technology, the dynamics of what's going to happen next in terms of the relationship with China and the US. And within that kind of 12 month time period, we've, we're going to have much more clarity around Taiwan for us to revisit. So I really look forward to being able to connect with you again soon. I love it. Thanks again for All having right. me. Take care, Louis. Take care, bud. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with lips and ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com.